It now seems that David's life is finally where we would expect it to be. We have gone through the tumultuous time in life of David and seen his difficulties and challenges and problems that he faced. And we see that it wasn't smooth sailing for David in his life, but but now he has become king over Israel. Jerusalem is now the stronghold and capital for David. The Ark of the Covenant has been successfully moved now to the city of David. David has been victorious in a number of military battles against the Philistines, finally driving them back out of the lands that they had conquered in the Judean area. And greatness of the reign of David, I think, is stated here as we come out of 2 Samuel 8. And so David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. And it seems that we are finally now where we thought David would be after all this while. After expecting a smooth transition from Saul to David and seeing that wasn't the case, now David is enthroned. He now rules over all of Israel. And and this is a statement of good times. He's administering justice, ruling in righteousness over all of his people. And it's in the midst of this that it seems that something is bothering David. Because we get a very unusual sentence made here in verse 1 of chapter 9. David, as ruling says, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? I have to think that his officials thought that came out of left field. Uh, What? Why would you want to show kindness to Saul's family? Don't you remember what Saul's family was like? Don't you remember what Saul was doing to you? Why would you want to be nice to any of the descendants of Saul? Remember how Saul had you hiding in a cave? Remember how we were, you know, basically the highway patrol for Israel because that's all we could do, hoping that people would give us something for helping watch them over their flocks and their lands? Don't you remember how, how Saul repeatedly tried to kill you? Don't you remember all the, the, the tumult that took place? Don't you remember having to leave and, and move away from everything that you knew? Why in the world, David, do you care about Saul's family? You know, typically, when a king comes to the throne, you don't try to show kindness to the previous dynasty. Rather, you wipe out the dynasty completely. That way, there's no one who's going to lay claim to the throne. It would have been much more expected for David to say, is there anyone remaining in Saul's family so that I can make sure to get rid of them? Because we don't want anybody taking lay hold of this throne. It's mine. But that's not what David does. David is, is there anybody I can show kindness to? And it's, that's, it just seems to be the crazy question. And again, i got to think the officials would be scratching their heads as they try to figure out, all right, uh, let's think about this. But, but this question does not come out of left field. I mean, back way on back in our story to the days when David is hiding out in the fields, if you remember... Jonathan, the son of Saul, is helping David out. Saul is trying to kill him in every aspect, and every point he can. And Jonathan is trying to help David and keep his life saved. And in the discussion that Jonathan and David have, we see that, that, that Jonathan says to, to, to uh, David there, If I continue to live, treat me with the Lord's faithful love. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your faithful love from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. 
And Jonathan knew that David was supposed to be the next king. He, even as being son of Saul and, and perhaps being next in line, who would be the king over Israel, uh, Jonathan knew full well he wasn't the one who was going to be the next king. David was going to be king. And what you see Jonathan saying to David as he's helping him, he's saying, I know you're going to be king. And if I live, continue to treat me kindly. If I die... Please don't ever withdraw your love from my household, from my descendants, my children. And remember a couple of lessons ago, we saw in 1 Samuel 31, we see Saul and Jonathan both die in battle. Now David is entrenched on the throne, and I think he remembers these words that he had spoken to Jonathan some time back, way on back there, and says, you know what? Is there anybody left in Saul's family that I can show kindness to? And I think this is interesting that of all the things that would come to David's mind at this point, this would be his concern. You know, I suppose nobody knew about this covenant that Jonathan and David had made together. I don't suppose this was on the record somewhere that, that somebody down the line would say, David, you remember that promise you made to Jonathan about how you're going to be nice to all the descendants of Saul? Who knew? They were out in the field together, running from their, for their lives, and here they are just making this quick little agreement together. David, if you live, be nice to me when you're king, and if I die, be nice to my descendants. And you can imagine, David, okay. At that point, does it look like David's going to be king? My goodness, he's running for his life. He can barely breathe as it is. Who would have known if David had not fulfilled these words that he had promised to Jonathan? Who would have ever known? Can you imagine all the excuses that David could have come up with to not be concerned about this promise that he had made to Jonathan? You know, I, I would imagine one of the easiest excuses would have been, you know, Saul was awful to me. And his descendants deserve what happened to them. If Saul had not been so wicked and disobedient, none of these things would have happened. They deserve what they got. I'm not going to bother with those descendants. I would have read that and said, that's reasonable to me. David could have said, you know, that was a promise made in my youth. We, we were kids. <laughs> we didn't know what we were talking about back then. We were on the run. We're living in the fields. Uh, who knew that things would be like this? How can I possibly be responsible for a silly promise that I made way on back when we were kids together? He could have said, you know what? I'm too busy. I, I've got too much to do. I, I'm king over Israel. I'm having to, to administer justice and rule and righteousness. You know, as king, there's a lot of things to do. The last thing I have time for is to worry about if there's any descendants of Saul still living, figure out where they are and do something about it. I'm too busy for that. God would understand. You see, David does not present any excuses. He remembers some words that he had stated. And so here in chapter 9 and verse 1, we see David asking the question, is there anybody left in Saul's family? Is there anybody still alive after all the mayhem that has taken place over these years? Is there somebody that I can show kindness to? Anybody that I can keep my covenant with? And I think that's really impressive of what we see with David. David was somebody who kept his word. David kept his commitments. He kept his covenant. When he said something, he was going to do it. His words were not idle. His words meant something to him. I believe 
another characteristic of David that would set him as somebody after God's own heart. When he could have used every excuse in the world at this moment, he decides, I'm going to do that which I said I was going to do. How many people do you know in life who, regardless of its inconvenience, will do exactly what they said they will do? Rare, right? Rare. People will do what they say they will, said they will do if it's still convenient for them. Now, then they'll follow through. But boy, put them to the test. Put them in a bind. Very rare to find the person who says, I will uphold my end. I will do what I said I will do, even if it hurts. And that's exactly what God demanded of his people. And exactly what we see the scriptures describing. God, as he spoke here, as Moses was instructing the people for the final time, as he says there, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it. Now that, that's an interesting angle all to itself. Yeah, I'm going to keep my word one of these days. You can imagine on David's deathbed, uh, is there anybody in Sam, Saul's house that I can uh, show kindness to? No. Now, David wasn't going to wait till the very last second and drag that. No, I'm going to keep my word as soon as I can. As he's now entrenched as king, it's time to do something. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you. And it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips, because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. I like what's stated there. You know what? It's okay not to make a promise. It's okay not to enter into a covenant. If you don't know that you can keep the words that you're saying, don't say it. You see, that's what Moses is telling them there. If you refrain from making a vow, vow, okay. But friends, if you say it, you better do it. God will require it. And David understood that. He said, you know, I made a statement to Jonathan. I better do it no matter what. And so be careful to do whatever comes from your lips. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it the same way. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. Because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow better that you do not vow than that you vow and do not fulfill it. There's a good warning by the writer of Ecclesiastes. Better not to say anything and do nothing than to say you're going to do something and then not do it. You're better off just never making the statement in the first place. And often we think we're going to make people feel better by saying, you know, oh yeah, I'll do this. And we may not have the intention of doing that, but by making the commitment, you know, we're kind of soothing them. They feel better. Oh, sure, I will look into that. I'll take care of that. I'll make that phone call. I'll write that letter. I'll do this. I'll do that. And we say that because then the other person feels better. But we may not have the intention of actually doing it. Better not to say it at all. If you're not going to do what you're saying, then don't do it and don't say it. Don't even let it come out of your lips. And God is very serious with our words. And that's why when the writer of Psalms, as David in Psalm 15, as he asked the question, who can dwell with God? One of the characteristics that David sets forth is they keep their promises even when it hurts. 
You know, that's when we want to find the loophole. That's when we're trying to find the exit. How can I get out of the thing that I've promised? Well, you know, I did say it with my fingers crossed. And so that means it's okay. You know, or we'll come up with something that we can think of, you know. And, and that's what David could have done here with this promise of Jonathan. I, I would think it would have been reasonable to say, you know, I was young. I was foolish. I, I was impetuous. I, I shouldn't have said that. I had no idea what it would entail to be king. I just said those things, you know. And, and God would understand that. You keep your word even when it hurts. You don't see people like that today. You don't come across people who keep a covenant, who keep a promise, who keep a commitment, even when it's painful to keep it. And I think it's important to recognize that God demands for us to keep our word, to keep our promise, to keep our commitments, to keep our vows. The things that we say that we are going to do, we are demanded by God to follow through with that which we have said. It's funny that it seems like everybody agrees. You kind of catch it on TV and shows and whatever. It seems that everybody agrees your word is your bond. That's thrown around pretty conveniently. I remember watching one TV show where he shook somebody's hand and said, uh, it was a reality show, you know, uh, if if my word is no good, then what am I? You know, uh, if I'm not going to keep my word, then then then, then what, what value is it? Later in that show, he turned on his word. And I was like, you're not going to keep your word even when it hurts? <laughs> oh, how convenient to ditch the thing you say is so valuable to you. My, my reputation is everything. I always have to keep my word. And yet, how often that is not necessarily the case when things get difficult. And sometimes we're forced into very difficult decisions because of various circumstances and commitments that, that, that arise. You know, your, your wife or your husband was not what you thought you married. You know, they seem to be one way all that time while dating and, you know, they're just not what you thought they were. Are you going to keep your commitment and your vow of marriage anyway? It's easy to say, oh, yeah, I should keep my word when we're talking about, okay, I'll take out the trash or, you know, something real low level. Yeah, at work, I'll take your shift or something like that. But think about some of the serious vows and commitments that that we've made. And sometimes we look for ways to get out of that. You know, well, uh, that just wasn't what I thought it was. Uh, we, we, We just don't have the same ideals and foundation anymore. And so, you know, but you made a commitment to that person and you made a vow before God. You're going through difficulties in, in marriage, your spouse cheats on you. Will you keep your vow of fidelity even though the other has not? That becomes a very common problem. They cheated on me, I'll cheat on them. I'll do something back to them. You've made a commitment not to. You've made a vow. And we get into difficulties, have children. Where did the days of taking naps and having vacation time go when you have kids? <laughs> the life that seems so complicated, you look back and go, boy, that was easy. We had free time. Are you going to keep your vows still to forsake all others and put your spouse first even when 
things are crazy when you have kids and things are difficult, when times are tough, you've made a commitment to put them above all else. You know, we sometimes treat everybody else better than our spouse, and yet we've made a commitment and a vow before them and before God that we will forsake all others, put them first. We've made a very important commitment. Make commitments to provide a stable home for our family. You know, is it any wonder that God says he hates divorce because Christians of all people should keep their word? And you're making a statement before the other person that I will stay with you for better or for worse. Sickness and in health. You know, whatever happens till death do we part. And often that's the vow we're trying to get out of the most. And I think it's important to recognize God's demand. Low-level, high-level commitments. When you say something, you do it. You keep your promise. You keep your commitment. You keep your vow, even in difficult situations. Even if somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing, you've said you'll do something. you said you'll make that commitment. And you'll do it even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. Very interesting how the scene continues in 2 Samuel 9. You have some of his servants going, yeah, you know, I think there's, there's one of Saul's descendants uh, somewhere out there. Uh, one of Saul's uh, servants of Saul, verse 2, is named Ziba. And he says, yeah, we, we've got a, got a guy named Mephibosheth. Uh, he, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's alive. Uh, he's living out in Lodabar. Lodabar in Hebrew means without pasture. Now, in our day and age, we'd say that's great. That's good for building houses. In those days, not so much. Uh, no farming. They're in bad part of land, living in low debar without any pasture land. And that would make sense. You have Saul's family tossed out of power. They're not going to be given great lands and say, well, let me give you some prime real estate after all that. They've been cast off to the side. And so here is Ziba saying, well, we've got Mephibosheth. He's the son of Saul. Uh, he's lame in both feet. He's, he's actually handicapped. If we go back in the story and rewind a little bit, the reason why is when an attack was made and Saul, on Saul and Jonathan, when they're killed, the news comes to the, the household and they evacuate for fear that they're going to be killed next. And the nurse, the one, the caretaker of Mephibosheth, he was five years old at the time while carrying out, uh, stumbles and falls and makes his legs lame. And that's the reason why Mephibosheth is in that state. And so here is a servant saying, yeah, there, there, there is Jonathan's son. He's living out in some really lousy real estate in low Debar. Let, let's go get him. And so David says, yeah, go get the servants. Go call for Mephibosheth. Now, I would just imagine what Mephibosheth was going through at the time when the servants knock on the door. Yeah, come on in. Uh, David wants to see you. <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> this can't be good. You don't want the new dynasty calling on the descendants of the old dynasty. It's that you're, you're done. That you're, you're over with. That's, that's the end. And I imagine that Mephibosheth is thinking the exact same thing. In fact, when he comes to David, notice what, he, what it says there. Verse 7, first words out of David's mouth, don't be afraid. <laughs> you can just see Mephibosheth like, I'm your servant. Don't do anything. And David's like, don't worry. Don't worry. They're going to be okay. And notice what, what happens with the rest. Verse 7, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father Jonathan. 
I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals with me at my table. What what a neat picture here. Is you know all that was taken away and stripped away when your father's dynasty fell. I'm going to give you your lands back. But even better, besides your descendants and having some good land and your servants having some real land to work with, you'll be able to provide for yourself, have some good pasture land. You're not even going home, Mephibosheth. You've just moved into the palace. And it's not even the outhouse of the palace. You're going to be at the table with me. You're eating with me now, Mephibosheth. You see Mephibosheth's just jaw-dropping like, you know, <laughs> where's the camera, right? you got to be kidding me. From you've come to kill me to look at the blessings you've received to me. And notice verse 8, Mephibosheth bows down and says, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? <laughs> he understands his position. He's done nothing to deserve this, this wonderful grace. He's done nothing to, to say, oh, well, you know, I, Mephibosheth was just doing so well out there in Lodibar that, that he deserved this promotion. He needed to come up here and sit at the palace and, and, and eat from the table with David and all the rest of the family. Can you imagine the, 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 the picture of that? Have you visualized that scene? You know, you've got David and Abigail and you, you've got uh, Adonijah and Amnon and, and you've got all the sons there and there's Mephibosheth eating, eating meals with them too. <laughs> I can imagine the kids are like, what's Mephibosheth doing here? Who's this guy? <laughs> Where'd he come from? You know, what a great picture of here's the family, and Mephibosheth's in the family too, sitting there eating at the table together. And Mephibosheth's like, what am I that you would treat me like this? I'm just a dead dog out here in Lodibar. And you have David there in verse 9, as the king summoned Saul's attendants and said, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons and your servants are to work the ground for him and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. I mean, he doesn't even answer and say, well, you know, Mephibosheth, that's just feeling real bad for you. You know, I mean, you had a really rough lot in life. You know, if your nurse hadn't dropped you, you'd be able to walk. And I know you're in a, in a pretty... He just ignores the whole thing, you know. He just starts instructing servants. All right, all that land, it, whoever's got it, it's, it's Saul's again. And Mephibosheth, he's not even working on the fields anymore. He's staying here with me. You guys work the fields. You send in the paycheck, basically, and he's going to stay here with me, and everything's going to be just great. What did Mephibosheth done to deserve any of that? Nothing. The only reason any of that happened was because David had made a covenant with Jonathan. Mephibosheth probably wasn't even around when that had happened yet. He wasn't around when that had happened. He'd made, David had made a covenant. David had made a promise. And because of that promise, Mephibosheth got to reap some serious blessings. What a bounty of blessings that suddenly falls upon him. All because of a promise that had been made even before he was alive. And that is, I think, a great representation of what God does in terms of his covenant love. It's a picture of what it means for God and his covenant. When he makes a promise, when he establishes a covenant, it is certain to be kept. 
Notice some of the pictures that are they're given to us in the scriptures. Like Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face, those who hate him. This is a, a, a neat statement that is made because here is God and his, he is a faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. That, that phrase covenant of love, there's one Hebrew word. I can't speak Hebrew. I won't even try to say it to you. But it's in one word. And all of the translations, you can grab a bunch of translations that try to translate this word. There are a number of translations trying to capture this really deep Hebrew word. And here the, the NIV uses the covenant of love. The, the New American Standard uses, I believe, steadfast love. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard uses the gracious covenant loyalty. Trying to get our minds and hands around this concept of what we're talking about. It is a love that never fails because God has said He will do something. Is that a good translation for one Hebrew word? It's God's love that He will do something because He said so. <coughs> he made a promise. He said He's going to do something. And so it's going to happen no matter what. And so this is the idea of what God does. And He does this a number of times uh, throughout the Scriptures to remind us of God's covenant love. One of the most notable that we probably remember is if you remember after the flood, God makes a promise, a covenant. And He says, I'm not going to destroy the world again by water. And I give you a sign to remind you of that, hanging a bow in the sky, so that we will be reminded that God will never destroy the world by water again. Thousands of years have gone by since that event. And there, God's faithful covenant still stands. A covenant of love saying that's the way it will always be. There are a number of, again, pictures that remind us of that. Not only Noah, I think of Abraham. Abraham had a covenant. You're going to be a great nation. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Your, your, your descendants are going to be so great, they're going to be as the stars of the sky and the sand, like the sand of the seaside. I love Abraham. I don't have any kids. How's that going to be? How can we possibly have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the, of the sea? And yet it happened. God fulfilling His promises. Go over to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea is about in the middle of your Bibles. Right after the prophecy of Daniel, you have the prophecies of Hosea. Hosea is put in such a unique situation. I don't know how Hosea did this. <laughs> what a command by God. Hosea, we're going to use you as the picture book of what's happening to me. That's what God says to Hosea. You know what? I'm going to make your life look just like the things that I'm going through. And so here's what I want you to do, Hosea. One, I'd like for you to marry a prostitute. I, I just go, you know, eject. You know, what? <laughs> you know, I'm done. No, Lord, no. I'm not, not, not going to, no. Yes? And chapter one goes on. 
you're going to have all sorts of children that are not yours. Because she's going to continue her harlotry even while married to you. Final son. So you look in the Bible, scriptures there of chapter 1. Hosea names the final son, Loami, not mine. You know, that had to be a joy in the delivery room. Not mine. His kids aren't mine. There's old Gomer, my wife, out with every other person in the world, not with me. Not keeping her covenant, not keeping her bargain. In chapter 2, Hosea then is told by God, you know what, Hosea? That's exactly what I'm going through with Israel right now. Israel is just prostituting themselves to idols. They're throwing themselves to all these other gods. They refuse to honor the covenant that I've made with them. They refuse to serve me. They refuse to stay true to me. But rather than allow Hosea to send away Gomer, as he had the right to do, as this was clearly sexual morality being committed against Hosea, Notice chapter 3 and verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to their other gods and their raisin cakes. Here's God telling Hosea, Now, to fulfill the picture book, what I want you to do, Hosea, after she's cheated on you over and over again, you've had children by other men, these other lovers, I want you now to take her back. I would have been like, Lord? (laughs) And God says, the reason why is because I'm taking Israel back, my covenant love. I've made a promise to Israel. I'm going to bring them back. Even though they've been awful, even though they've been sinful, even though they have been violating my laws, even though they love another. Did you see that there? He tells Hosea, even though Gomer's loved by another fellow, you take her back. Because even though Israel was loving other gods, God was going to take Israel back. The Old Testament repeatedly tries to portray the picture of what God's covenant love looks like. It is a promise that is never ever broken. God remains true to His Word no matter what. And it's impressive. And it's such an an impressive picture that is given. And and the picture of Hosea is just the ultimate picture of there's any time where God would say, you know what? I'm done with Israel. I'm out. They've broken the covenant, not me. And so I have no, no reason to fulfill my end of the bargain. God doesn't do that. God says, okay, I'll take you back. Because God keeps His word. I love what Paul says about this to Titus. As he begins his letter, he talks about God's promise. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. And I sit back and I think about, here's a promise God made before any of us were around, 
before any of us committed our sins. God knowing full well what the end result will be, but God who does not lie, who cannot lie, He made a promise about eternal life. Anything that we had done to deserve that promise, no more than for what Gomer had done to Hosea. Did Gomer deserve to come back to Hosea? Absolutely not. Certainly undeserving. And this is the picture that Paul is giving here. Here is a description of God keeping his promise of eternal life. This is the idea of God's love is that he will keep his word and we have violated God's law. And we have to see how faithful God is to us. Even though we sin, even though we choose to disobey, God still offers us to return. God still pleads with us to come back to Him because of His Word, because of His bond, His covenant, His promise. Can you imagine if David's servants had knocked at the door of Mephibosheth and they said, you know what? David was going to now let you sit at the table. You're going to get all the land back. You're going to get all these great promises. Think of the blessings of living in the palace with David. And you're going to eat at the very table with David. You're not going to be like a dead dog any longer. You're going to have all the wealth and the inheritance that you were supposed to have. It's now being given back to your family again. And you're right there with King, King David all alone. Can you imagine if Ibbosheth saying, you know, that sounds nice and all, but I'd rather live in Lodabar. You know, I'd rather live out there in the, in the wilderness. I'd rather live in that without pasture land. Yeah, I know, sitting with King David, I, you know, I'm sure David eats pretty nicely, but boy, we've got it good in Lodabar. <laughs> well, I would have been like Mephibosheth. Hello, are you insane? Go, sit at the table with David. Feast with him. Receive the inheritance. Take the blessings. God offering that to us. God is saying, take the blessings. Come to me. I want you to sit at the table with the Father. I want you to eat with me. I want to give you your inheritance. I want to give you the blessings. And we respond with, I'm enjoying Lodomar here so much. I'm enjoying the physical things of this world so much. I'm enjoying my fast cars and I'm enjoying my job and I love my wealth and I've got all my neat little things. I've got my comforts. Lord, I, I don't need all that. Why would I want eternal life? I'd rather die here with a few bucks. Lord, why would I want to sit at the table and enjoy the, the eternal blessings with you? I've got things going so well here. We are foolish because that's exactly how we live with God. Why does God allow us to come back? Because of His covenant love. Because He made a promise before time began that He would continue to offer eternal life even though we don't deserve it. Even though we continue to violate God's law. Even though we continue to spit in His face concerning those blessings. Can you imagine how insulting it would have been for David to hear from Mephibosheth, no, nah, things right here are real great right here. No, thanks, David. I'm going to stay right here. And David been like, fine, you stay there. Then. Is that not God looking at us? When we choose to live for the physical, we choose to put the things of this world, 
above the great and awesome inheritance that He has promised before time began to offer to each and every one of us. And yet we plunge ourselves into our jobs, we plunge ourselves into our things, our wealth, our stuff, our comfort. We waste time here in this world with the dumb things of life rather than focusing on we can be sitting at the table with the Father. And it's all because of God's commitment, because of God's promise before time began. It's a beautiful picture that God takes us back despite of our sins. There's nothing we did to deserve it. There's nothing that we can point to. You know, Mephibosheth couldn't say, well, you know, I was a real good guy, and that's why David came along. No, it's not true. It had nothing to do with Mephibosheth. It had everything to do with God made a promise. And friends, it has nothing to do with our righteousness or anything that we've done. God made a promise before any of us existed that He was going to send His Son to offer us eternal life. He made that promise. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. All that had to do with God's faithful love. That he made a covenant. And now the question is, so how will you respond? What will you do? Will you stay in low debar? Or will you leave and eat at the feast that the Father has offered? Don't you love how the New Testament repeatedly pictures feast pictures? You're always before God. Feast and festival. <coughs> a reminder of what it's like and what it will be like to be with God. Let's not stay here in Lodabar. And why do we set our hope on the things of this world? Why do we think that we will find the pleasures in the things that are physical when repeatedly we find vanity there? The thing that we believe will give us most joy and most comfort doesn't. We go get a new whatever and we have joy for a moment and then it's gone. New house, new car, new stuff, new computer, new whatever, new clothes. Great for a while, and then we feel empty again. New job, feels great for a while, and eh, it's not so much. Want stuff, want things. Doesn't bring joy. Emptiness everywhere we turn. And yet we refuse to realize that God the Father is calling us, begging us to accept the promise that He has given to you. Won't you come to Him? Won't you decide, you know what? I need to live for God. It's time to accept the covenant promise that He's made. It's time for me to live up to my end of the bargain. And He's asked of us to do such a little thing to sit at the feast of the table of God. Decide I'm not going to live for self any longer. I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to appreciate the blessings that God has poured out. Because even though I have been wicked, even though I have been sinful, God keeps his word. And he wants me and he wants you to live with him eternally. Confess that He's the Lord. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Have your sins washed away this very morning. Know that you have eternal life and dedicate yourself to following Him now with all of your heart. Are you ready to do that? If you are, let one of us know. You can let me know. 
You can let someone sitting next to you know that you're ready to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're not, you can walk forward in this aisle and state that I'm ready to be a disciple, I'm ready to be a follower, while we stand and while we sing.